0: Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause.
1: Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you
0: can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data and information in one AI powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. You may know journalist Emily Bazelon from the pages of the New York Times or from Slate's Political Gab Fest podcast. Now, she has a new narrative podcast. It's called Charged, and it launched last week. It's about a special gun court in Brooklyn that was designed to fast-track gun possession charges, which Emily has been reporting on for over a year. Charged not only tells compelling human stories, but it also digs into what's happening in America right now, exploring our shifting ideas about criminal justice. The show asks big, often thorny questions. What makes someone a criminal? Can you ever really outrun that label? And if you're going to take apart the machine built in America to punish people, what do you put in its place? To learn more, search for Charged on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara.
1: Every day, in every court, in every village, hamlet, city, town in this country, judges and juries place values on lives every day. That's
0: Ken Feinberg. He's the founder and managing partner of Feinberg Law Offices, and he's known as the master of disasters. For more than 30 years, he has been deciding how much money victims of tragedies receive through his work administering victim compensation funds. He oversaw the funds for 9-11 victims, survivors of the Boston Marathon, the pulse bombing, the BP oil spill, and many, many other crises. I speak with him about his path to the strange and vital work, the essential purpose of empathy, and how to value a life. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Hey, folks, for this portion of the program, uh, it turns out that I'm in London, England, to promote my book for the week. And I'm recording the Q&A for this week. Stay Tuned on April 24th, about 4 p.m. London time. Let's get to your questions.
1: Hi, Preet, Jody in Denver. The one thing I just want to know is your opinion on, does Bob Mueller still have a friendship, trust, whatever, with Barr? Everyone said they're great friends. Does he look at him differently? Does he just compartmentalize this? Thanks so much. Love you. Bye.
0: Uh, hey, Joe, you so nobody's asked that question. It's an interesting one. It presupposes a few things. First of all, it presupposes that Bob Mueller has reason to be upset with or angry at Bill Barr. And I guess we don't know the answer, really. We have been speculating and engaging in conjecture on the question of whether or not Bob Mueller intended for the issue of obstruction to be left to Congress or to future prosecutors once the president leaves office. And the extent to which Bill Barr sort of dove in and grabbed the ball and decided the question, I don't know if that would upset Bob Mueller. He's not a person to get particularly emotional. So I think we need to understand how Mueller viewed his role and how he viewed the actions taken by Bill Barr. But on top of that, and I'm not a friendship expert, although I have many close personal friends, it depends on what you mean by friend. Now we all know there there are hierarchies of friendship. There's like Bestie, there's BFF, and then there's also at the other end of the spectrum, something that I heard when I worked in the District of Columbia, something known as Washington friend, (laughs) which I took to mean people who had a cordial relationship uh, would call each other friends in public. You know that it's very commonplace on the Senate floor and on the House floor for people to say about political rivals they actually don't necessarily respect. Or like, you know, I disagree with my friend, the gentleman from South Carolina, or I disagree with my friend, the gentle lady from Alaska. So the word friend has a sort of interesting usages depending on where you are, and particularly in Washington. I don't know the degree of their closeness and friendship. Uh, I haven't seen too many reports that describe uh, you know, what their relationship is. I'll say in a different context, the question has been raised with respect to any friendship between Bob Mueller and Jim Comey. And you may remember that, that the president has said, among other things, to undermine uh, sort of the, the independence and good faith of the Mueller investigation, claiming that he's best friends with Jim Comey Uh, you know, putting him at the other end of the spectrum from Washington front, and then Jim Comey, not in any, I think, effort to distance himself from Bob Mueller, when asked a question, I think in congressional testimony, are you friends with Bob Mueller? I think he said something like, well, I'm friendly with him, but we don't socialize. I've never been to his home. I don't know the names of his children, but I admire him and I respect him. And to the extent that is a friendship, then presumably Bob Mueller has that same relationship with Bill Barr, Anyway, so I don't know what will be the future of their having drinks, uh, if they've ever had drinks together before, but I've appreciated this opportunity to ruminate on the nature of friendship in Washington and elsewhere. The next question comes in a tweet from Joseph Miller, whose handle is Texas Joe. At Preet Bharara, I'm curious. The Mueller report says that Trump ordered McGahn to fire Mueller. As White House counsel, would that have been in his, McGahn's, power to do, thanks to Hashtag ask pre. Well, as an initial matter, it's sort of unclear who had the power to do what and make what kinds of representations. Um, I believe the Mueller report set forth a series of conversations between the president, Trump, and McGahn, in which the president made clear to McGahn that he wanted McGahn to call Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, I believe at the time when he was the acting attorney general for purposes of the special counsel investigation, and ask Rosenstein to fire Mueller, uh, which I think was clearly in his purview. And then there would have been an argument about whether it was appropriately done or not appropriately done and probably a lot of fireworks and dramatic hearings in the Senate. Uh, It's also true that the president on his own could have made these phone calls and did not have to have, I don't think, an intermediary to get Bob Mueller filed. Remember, Bob Mueller is a special counsel who is required to still be uh, within the reporting hierarchy of the Department of Justice, not an independent counsel, uh, and is not subject to the same protections as an independent counsel. So presumably, McGahn would have had the authority to tell the deputy attorney general to fire Bob Mueller, and presumably the deputy attorney general would only have done that if he understood the request to be coming by the president. Not clear why necessarily you have to have a middleman like the White House counsel, but fortunately, as we all know, that direction was not acted upon, and Rudy Giuliani in his appearance on State of the Union on CNN last week, preceding mine, He disputed even the very idea that Trump had asked McGahn to take any action that would cause the removal of Bob Mueller. But if you read the report carefully, you know that's not at all what the special counsel found. This next question comes in an email from Carol in Manhattan, who writes, Hi, Preet. I'm wondering what you made of Rod Rosenstein's posture standing behind Bill Barr at his pre-report release press conference. To me, he looked like he was trying to get through it without displaying any affect at all. What do you imagine he was thinking? I don't know. Some people have suggested he looked like he was about to throw up. Other people suggested he was just trying to keep a straight face. So I don't know what he was thinking. I will say that one of the more interesting characters in this entire saga is Rod Rosenstein, who has gone from one day being the president's absolute nemesis, uh, who is the reason why we have Bob Mueller in the first place. And it's fascinating for me to see the president and some of his allies Attacking person after person as having gotten us down this path, and at least in recent times, does not lay blame at the feet of Rod Rosenstein. But but for Rod Rosenstein being upset in the wake of the firing of Jim Comey, there is no Bob Mueller at all. So, you know, Rod Rosenstein is a person who has been described by other people and who, by his track record, has shown himself to be a quote unquote survivor. I believe Jim Comey used that expression and he didn't mean it as a compliment. You know, he served in the Bush administration. In the Obama administration and continued with a promotion in the Trump administration to become the deputy attorney general. On the one hand, he penned a document that was clearly a pretextual basis for the firing of Jim Comey. Then, when Jim Comey was fired and he was under assault, uh, by all quarters, he appointed Bob Mueller, which is kind of a nuclear act that he engaged in, then, in a way that actually helped him uh, with his standing among Democrats in the House and the Senate. He was a pretty steadfast supporter of the Mueller investigation, said, I think more than once, that it wasn't a witch hunt, got crosswise with the president for all of those reasons. There was that dramatic moment that we've talked about on Stay Tuned, where it looked like he was being summoned to the White House to be humiliated and fired. That moment passed. Then it looked like he was stepping down at some point in recent weeks. Then that moment passed. You know, I'm a little bit surprised to have seen him even be in the position at the end of the day for... Bill Barr's press conference on the Mueller report. So he's quite a mixed bag when it comes to how this whole thing played out and how it unfolded, and is probably viewed as a mixed bag by the president. What was he thinking? I don't know, but I think one of the more interesting things we will learn about in the aftermath of all of this uh, is what he was thinking and how he thought about it along the way. This next question is an email from Paul in East Booth Bay. I don't know where that is. And Paul's question relates to some material in the Mueller report that suggests, and actually state, that when the president asked Don McGahn to do questionable things, McGahn contacted his own lawyer. And he says, I can understand why, say, a general practitioner would ask an oncologist or another medical specialist for advice outside his field, but why would a lawyer like McGahn need a lawyer? So this calls to mind uh, a famous aphorism that attorneys well know, and that is, uh, any man who would represent himself has a fool for a client. So first of all, Don McGahn is not a criminal lawyer. Don McGahn is not someone who has handled uh, certain kinds of investigations. And so even though he might have broad experience and his particular specialty for a period of time was election law, uh, he is not in a position to know the ins and outs of how to represent someone, much less himself, I think, in an ongoing investigation that is fraught and then has all sorts of complicated issues, including uh, conflicts of interest, uh, relationship with the president, executive privilege. Uh, the possibility of uh, taking the fifth. So all sorts of issues swirling around Don McGann's potential cooperation. And so a guy like that needs a lawyer. By the way, he had an excellent lawyer named Bill Burke, who I have said before on the show is a friend of mine and is an excellent lawyer and an alum of the Southern District of New York. So in some ways, it's not that different from the scenario that you posit where a general practitioner would ask an oncologist or another medical specialist for advice outside the field. Look, it is an ordinary thing and a commonplace thing for people who are swept up in investigation who have to you know, testify and provide information to an investigator, either under oath or in a circumstance in which false statements might lead to their own prosecution, you want to have counsel. You want to have people who can advise you on it, whether or not you have an interest in, in, in criminal law. In fact, if a criminal lawyer got uh, swept up in investigation, that person would also want to have an outside lawyer as well. So while it's commonplace to do that, if you're swept up in an investigation, it is not so commonplace for the White House counsel to be a witness in an ongoing, you know, counter espionage and criminal investigation that involves the president of the United States. And whatever you think about the ultimate conclusion of the Mueller report, it is an extraordinary thing that so many people in the White House had to hire counsel to protect their own interests and to protect their own rights. So not not crazy that he got a lawyer. It's a smart thing. And he actually found a very good lawyer, unlike some folks. But when you take a step back and realize the craziness of how much had to be investigated because of how much smoke it was thrown up, that so many people had to, at their own expense, uh, in many cases, hire outside counsel, that's something to think about. Okay, this question comes in a tweet from Terry O'Reardon, who says, at Preet Bharara, how optional is compliance to a subpoena? If they can be ignored, then what is the value of subpoena power? Hashtag ask Preet, hashtag stay tuned. So subpoenas are meant to be uh, tools... For compulsory process. Uh, Prosecutors have that ability. Certain Senate committees and House committees have that ability. And you have that ability in the civil context, too. But presumably, you're talking about investigations by Congress and investigations by federal prosecutors. Subpoenas cannot be ignored. But of course, there are occasions where uh, prosecutors and committees both uh, may be found by a court to have overreached their subpoena power, asking for things that are inappropriate or beyond the scope of their authority. And when that happens, the person to whom the subpoena has been issued can challenge it. And we have due process in this country. And when someone decides they don't like the subpoena, or they want to fight it, or even just want to slow it down, they can do what is called a motion to quash the subpoena. And so then that gets litigated. And those litigations and those uh, skirmishes about subpoenas are much more quickly litigated and brought to a conclusion, typically... When you're talking about federal prosecutors and ordinary citizens, they get, I think, caught up in a little bit more difficulty when you're talking about skirmishes that involve subpoenas and members of the White House or the president himself. And remember, one of the reasons given for why the special counsel chose not to ultimately subpoena Donald Trump for his testimony relating to the investigation was because it would take a long time, and he probably thought in some ways time was of the essence, and you know, that litigation would have dragged on for a very long time, as those kinds of litigations have before, when there's a squaring off between special counsel or an independent counsel and somebody in the office of the presidency. You'll recall also, maybe, that Bill Clinton uh, was issued a subpoena initially by independent counsel Ken Starr for him to come testify. At the end of the day, uh, before that could be resolved through any kind of litigation, they had a negotiated resolution uh, by which Bill Clinton agreed to appear for testimony but on a voluntary basis, and the subpoena was withdrawn. So subpoenas mean something, they're supposed to be compulsory, but there are bases for opposing them, and then when there's gonna be a big you know, contest or fight about it in litigation, often it's the case that the parties reach some accommodation and proceed on some negotiated basis. And in this case involving the president, the accommodation to some degree was the president providing written answers to some portion of the questions that were put to him. Hey folks, exciting news from the CAFE headquarters. We launched the Cafe Brief. It's a free newsletter that recaps news and analysis of politically charged legal matters sent twice a week. Sign up to receive it at cafe.com/slash brief. That's cafe.com/slash brief. My guest this week is Ken Feinberg. He was the special master of the 9-11 Victim Compensation Fund and has overseen payments for victims of Agent Orange, the Boston Marathon, the BP Oil Spill, the Pulse Bombing, and many others. He was also tapped by the Treasury Department to decide appropriate pay for financial and auto executives after the bailouts. And a quick warning, this episode includes a brief discussion of sexual abuse with regard to his work on the Catholic Church abuse scandal. Feinberg is the founder and managing partner of Feinberg Law Offices and the author of two books, What Is Life Worth? and Who Gets What? He also served as an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York and... As a staffer in the Senate, I speak with him about how he fell into this critical and difficult work, the role of listening, and how we put a price on a life, and why he's called himself a human piñata. That's coming up. Stay tuned. If you're trying to be a smarter version of yourself, you need to start by watching and listening to The Great Courses Plus. There's a wealth of information available on the streaming service ...from some of the best professors across a huge range of interests. Enjoy lectures on topics like Athenian democracy, nuclear physics, Winston Churchill, forensics, and more. You'll learn so much from the Great Courses Plus, even about topics you think you know. They even have a course on investigating American presidents, speaking of topics you think you know. This course offers a nonpartisan historical look at what happens when presidents are accused of abusing their power... Because what we're living through now is unique, but we can learn from what's come before. Or if you're just totally saturated and all you can handle is me talking about the news, try a course like How to Paint or Everyday Guide to Wine. Whatever you want to study, you'll love The Great Courses Plus. And we have a special, limited-time offer. Get a free trial, plus lock into their lowest price of $10 per month when you sign up for a three-month plan. That's 50% off the regular price. This deal is only available for a limited time, and only at thegreatcoursesplus.com/slash-preet. Get your free trial, plus fifty percent off your monthly plan now, only at thegreatcoursesplus.com/slash-preet. Alarm, the willies, the heebie-jeebies, panic. There are dozens of words for fear, but just one for exceptional home security. Simply Safe. This is home security that knows it feels good to fear less. SimpliSafe offers award-winning 24-7 protection that protects your home through it all, blizzards, blackouts, and burglars. Also, things that don't start with B. SimpliSafe has won awards from all the tech experts that count. The Verge says it's the best home security. It's won Reader's Choice from PC Magazine. It's the two-time winner of CNET Editor's Choice. And it's a Wirecutter Top Pick simply safe has no contract no hidden fees and no gotchas fear has no place in a place like home try simply safe today with free shipping and free returns and you'll get a 60-day risk-free trial order now and have your home protected within a week at simplysafe.com slash preet that's simplysafe.com preet be sure to use that web address so they know we sent you Ken Feinberg, thanks so much for making time to be on the show.
1: Glad to be here today.
0: So you and I have some things in common. I've never administered a multi-billion-dollar compensation fund, but uh, you and I were both assistant U.S. attorneys in the Southern District of New York. You and I both worked on the Senate Judiciary Committee. How was your experience on the committee?
1: Well, I was very fortunate, because when I worked on the Senate Judiciary Committee from 1975 until 1978... Uh, It was a very bipartisan consensus Senate where I worked for Senator Kennedy, and Senator Kennedy got along very well with Senator Thurman and Senator Hatch, and uh, we managed to accomplish a great deal. And I worked with uh, then Chief Counsel Stephen Breyer and then Special Counsel David Boyes. So we we had a very good time.
0: It's quite a staff. You're still friendly with Justice Breyer, right?
1: Very, very close. We're very close friends.
0: Does he tell you what he thinks of his new colleagues on the court?
1: He says everybody works together very, very well. (laughs) He's a politician still.
0: (laughs) So it's wonderful, just like the committee back in the old days on the court. Right. Why did you go work on the Senate?
1: I was in the Southern District doing criminal cases, and I got word through a mutual friend that Senator Kennedy needed somebody on his Judiciary Committee staff with expertise in the criminal law, substantive criminal law. So I applied, and uh, I was a Massachusetts, a former Massachusetts resident and a supporter of Senator Kennedy.
0: I couldn't tell. I couldn't tell from the accent.
1: And I went and interviewed, and uh, he offered me the position, and I took it.
0: Why do you think people got along better and on a more bipartisan basis then than
1: they do now? Well, there's a recent book about this by Ira Shapiro on the great Senate. And one reason is I think that um, you had some real giants in the Senate during those days who saw the Senate as an institution much differently than it's seen today. And also it was a much more, I mean, <laughs> there were plenty of disagreements, but there was a much, it was a much more consensus-driven institution where everybody tried at least to find some common ground.
0: Do you think everyone should read that book? Or do you think that we're on track to become even more embittered and more polarized in Congress, or do you see any path to get back to the time when people got along, even if they disagreed on policy?
1: Well, it's a murky crystal ball. Part of the problem is institutional in terms of what the Senate's become and the House. Part of the problem, I think, is leadership and uh, setting an example. And I think that I'm an inherent optimist that eventually uh, there'll be a return to the days of more, more consensus and more um, getting along. Certainly hope so.
0: Hope springs eternal. Yeah, I, I wonder if you had a similar experience to mine, which was after having spent five years as an assistant U.S. attorney, and actually trying criminal cases, appearing in court, understanding the statutes, understanding the limitations of the job we had in SDNY, and then going to the Senate uh, on the Judiciary Committee and working on legislation and seeing how the sausage is made. Every once in a while, I was a bit taken aback at how laws were formulated in conference rooms, often populated by lots and lots of people who knew nothing about how the law worked and had never practiced law, much less criminal law. Did you did you find that disconcerting ever?
1: No, I I was lucky because when I was working on the committee, I was working hand in glove with the Department of Justice in Washington, Attorney General Edward Levy, and his people, and Justice, then uh, soon Justice Scalia, Doug Marvin, Roger Pawley, Civil servants who educated me and educated the committee and educated the Senate on um, the strengths and weaknesses of certain legislation. It was while I was in the Senate working for Senator Kennedy that I was asked by Attorney General Levy to sit down with his staff and work out, for the first time, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. And Senator Kennedy, the Democrat, introduced for uh, President Ford and Attorney General Levy, that legislation, which ultimately became the law and has since been an important part of the national security apparatus. So I was lucky. I didn't um, confront uneducated or um, on-the-job training associates. I worked overwhelmingly with very experienced people at DOJ that taught me a thing or two, frankly.
0: Right. And probably taught other staffers on the committee as well. Right. How much did Ted Kennedy joke around back then? I I know him a little bit from that time working in the Senate for Senator Schumer, and I don't remember a time when the two of them interacted and there wasn't some amount of comedy that took place.
1: Oh, there was tremendous. Uh, Kennedy used to have shouting matches on the floor of the Senate with Senator McCain, John McCain of Arizona. And then you'd see them after the shouting died down and they went into the Senate back room, and they'd be laughing and chucking it up and <laughs> holding each other by the arm. And uh, that, 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 was, uh, that was the way Kennedy operated. Kennedy was a very, very savvy, friendly, and sensitive senator. And uh, he, he I think the history books demonstrate his, his role as a giant in the Senate when he was there. And he was there for 45 years, don't forget.
0: I mean, one of the things I thought about that, I knew him a little bit later in life, not long before he passed away that here's a person who has a lot of money, who's proven a lot, and whatever you think of him, and people you know, on, certain, on one side of the aisle didn't like a lot of his ideas, but that guy worked really hard. And I would see him from when I was working late on the television screen that every staffer has in, in their office, and it'd be nine o'clock at night, and he'd be railing about some immigration bill or amendment, and no one else is in the chamber. And he could have been home or at a fancy restaurant having dinner somewhere, and he was there, you know, in his 70s, giving a full-length, full-throated speech on immigration, which he cared about. And, you know, not everyone did that.
1: No, that's right. I think that everybody acknowledged how hard he worked and how diligent and how determined he was to try and get things done. Up there. He always used to tell me that the perfect is the enemy of the good. The other thing you'll be familiar with is the way that the Senate worked in those days. One day in the 1970s, I was a young staffer. Kennedy said to me, come on, I want you to see how this place operates. And he took me down to see the chairman of the committee, Senator James Eastland of Mississippi, arch segregationist, fought every civil rights law that was ever um, proposed. Kennedy walked into Senator Eastland's office and he said, Mr. Chairman, I'm here because there are four federal district court vacancies One in Massachusetts, one in New York, one in California, one in Rhode Island. And I'm here to ask the chairman if we can please move these nominations forward as quickly as possible. And Eastman looked at him and he said, Ted, you want these four? Quickly move through. Well, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. A week from Tuesday, I'm going to hold a hearing on these four. And I'm going to chair the hearing. And we're going to get those four up and out within an hour. And please notify the four candidates, the nominees, that uh, we'll be moving these four promptly. Kennedy said, well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. He starts to leave and the Chairman Eastland says, no, 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 wait wait a minute, Ted. I'm also going to put on the agenda for that day four other nominees from Mississippi, Georgia, Louisiana, And Sam Irvin has one he wants from North Carolina. Now I don't want any trouble on those four. And we'll put all eight up. We'll blow them through in an hour. And I said to Senator Kennedy afterward, you know, two of those, you know, that that one from Mississippi or that one from Georgia, you know, they're very, very anti-civil rights. And, And Kennedy looked at me. He goes, you're learning how things operate here. I need these four for Javits, for Kennedy, for Alan Cranston of California. I mean, Ken, this is the way things operate here. And uh, all eight got through and um, we moved on. That the, the, Those days are yesterday.
0: There was one time early in my time as a staffer on the committee, I was standing just off the Senate floor and I was briefing Senator Schumer on something. And for no reason in particular, he calls over Ted Kennedy, who's walking by, and he says, Teddy, come over here. And he looks at me and he looks at Ted Kennedy and he says, I don't know if you've met my new chief counsel, Preet Bharara, he's from Ireland, <laughs> and uh, you know I don't look very Irish. And Ted Kenny just started laughing <laughs> with that big belly laughter. I didn't really understand the joke, and I walked away. But they had a lot of fun. They did. Let's talk a little bit about what your more recent life's work has been. And one of the, one of the, my favorite quotes about you, I don't know how you'll feel about it, is the following: Someone once wrote, "Where there is death and suffering, or merely bankruptcy and financial ruin." There, oddly enough, is Kenneth R. Feinberg. How do you feel about that description?
1: That's a pretty uh, fair description of my work (laughs) the last 35 years, I must say. uh, I uh, dread reading the newspaper every day, wondering what the next tragedy is going to mean for me and what I'm doing.
0: So how did you begin in this business, which has now been visited upon you time and time again, of being the person essentially in control of, to borrow a phrase, That was the title of a book you once wrote, Who Gets What, when there's a a huge amount of compensation to be distributed. How'd that start?
1: By pure accident, I was asked by um, a man you admire, I think, Federal District Judge Jack Weinstein in the Eastern District in Brooklyn. We had both clerked 30 years apart for the same judge, the chief judge of New York, Stanley Fold. Weinstein called me up. In my law office in Washington and he said, I want you to get up here and I want to appoint you the special master, the administrator, the mediator to resolve the Vietnam Veterans Agent Orange product liability litigation. 250,000 class members, all Vietnam veterans claiming injury or illness due to exposure to the herbicide Agent Orange while serving in Vietnam. Well, I told Judge Weinstein, I don't know anything about mediation or the administration of a claims program. You'll be perfect for this. You've worked for Senator Kennedy. You're respected by the Republicans. You know people at the Veterans Administration. I want you to do this. Well, that was the beginning of a course correction in my life, professionally certainly. In eight weeks, with his help, we settled the class action unheard of at that time, for about $250 million over 10 years with the eight chemical companies, Dow and Monsanto and the others. And once that case was settled and once we began distributing money to eligible Vietnam veterans, others started calling me. Will I settle this case? Will I settle that case? This airplane crash, asbestos, DES, etc. And then was 9-11 when I got a call from the attorney general of the United States, John Ashcroft, who asked me to come down and see him. There was a new law enacted by Congress to compensate victims of the 9-11 attacks. And he asked me if I would become, pursuant to statute, a federal law had been passed, the uh, special master to design, implement, and administer that program. And that's uh, the genesis of my professional career.
0: Before we get more in-depth on 9-11 and some of the other cases, can we take a step back? And let me ask you, how do you think about and how should we think about how to place a dollar value on a life?
1: Oh, I don't think that's very difficult at all to do. People think that requires the wisdom of Solomon, but, but you and I know better. Every day in every court, in every village, hamlet, city, town in this country— Judges and juries place values on lives every day. What would the victim have earned over a work life? How much more pain and suffering and emotional distress equals dollars? You know, it's sort of like chapter seven of your tort casebook.
0: Right. Is that the right way to think about how to value a life based on... I
1: I don't know if it's the (laughs) right way, but I'm not prepared. I tell people all the time, I'm not prepared to value dignity and loyalty and courage.
0: Is there an argument to be made that in many contexts, and I know we don't do it this way, in tort claims, that every life is equal? And if absolutely. there's a certain amount, amount of compensation to be had, it should be allocated equally. And there have been some settlements that you have overseen that have distributed that way, no?
1: You're absolutely right. In fact, most of the settlements that I distribute following tragedy, the Boston Marathon bombings, or the Pulse nightclub terrorist attack in Orlando, Florida, or the um, tragedy in Las Vegas, the shootings at Virginia Tech, all of those cases where I'm called in, I do exactly what you're suggesting. The money that I have is all privately donated from businesses and individuals around the nation who have been touched by the tragedy, so they send in money. Now, that money and that program, like the Boston Marathon, is not like 9-11, an alternative to the tort system. It's a gift. It's a gift. There's no release. There's no requirement. It's, It's money to be allocated to eligible victims. So what I do is take a certain portion of the money, depending on the amount and the number of dead and injured, all lives are equal, just as you mentioned a minute ago, Everybody who died in the Boston Marathon, whether you're an 8-year-old child or a 42-year-old wage earner, you're going to get the same $2 million. All lives are equal. If you were physically injured, all I want to know is how long you were in the hospital as a result of the tragedy. Hospitalization is a pretty good surrogate for seriousness of injury. If you were in the hospital 30 days and the hospital says that's the case, I'm going to give you $1 million. If you were in three weeks, $750,000. Two weeks, $500,000, if I have the money. And uh, we try and streamline it and make it much more efficient and much less controversial and emotional. How
0: did you settle upon the metric of days in the hospital? Were there backup metrics that you might have used instead?
1: Well, we certainly didn't have time to bring in experts to evaluate medical records, We didn't have time to determine the financial wherewithal, the savings of the victims. We have this money. We have to get it out fairly quickly. Everybody expects efficiency and speed. Well, if I'm going to avoid a huge overlay of doctors and experts and medical records, and if I'm going to avoid asking victims to compound the horror by giving me their bank accounts and their stock uh, investment and what they're worth, brush all of that aside in the interest of speed. And I say, all I want from you if you were injured is a letter from the hospital, a hospital letterhead telling me how long you were in the hospital because of the bombings. That's all I want to know. And based on your your hospitalization, which is a pretty good barometer, I think, of how seriously you were hurt. We'll give you your money. You don't have to sign anything. It's a gift. And do what you want with it. And we got the money out in 60 days.
0: I want to talk about 9-11 a little bit more. When you were the special master of the 9-11 victim compensation fund, is it the case that you thought that your job was to do justice or something more mundane than that?
1: Very much more mundane. Very much more mundane.
0: What did you consider your job to be?
1: My job in that, in that case was to implement and administer a statute that Congress had enacted that provided me a blueprint of how I should distribute whatever funds I needed. There were no appropriated funds. It was authorized. Whatever Feinberg needs, take it out of petty cash from the U.S. Treasury. There's no appropriated max.
0: But the statute did not set forth in every respect, all the standards and all the guidelines and all the metrics. You had a certain amount of discretion.
1: A certain amount, you're right, a certain amount. But don't forget, that statute did lay out a very clear tort-based methodology. In other words, since the victim had to sign a release, not to sue, you knew right away, reading that statute, that every single individual, 5,300 people, were going to get a different amount of money. Because like the tort system... Economic loss plus pain and suffering equals your award. Feinberg will authorize it. You don't have to take it, but if you take it, sign a release, I'm done suing. And um, that at least provided me an anchor from which we had to develop certain guidelines. For example, the statute said that in order to recover and be eligible you had to have died or been physically injured in the immediate vicinity of the World Trade Center or the Pentagon. Now, you know Foley Square backwards and forwards. You tell me, what is the immediate vicinity of the World, of the world Trade Center in that case? We, we rejected claims brought by people in Jersey City or Staten Island on the grounds that that couldn't be the immediate vicinity of the World Trade Center. Also, to be eligible, you had to have, if you were physically injured, you had to have sought medical attention within, uh, immediately after the attacks. What does that mean? So we came up with a, a rule. I think it was 72 hours you had to have sought medical attention. And if you were a first responder who refused courageously to leave the site, we added some time to make it 96 hours. And we required this because the law sort of laid out certain confines that we put meat on the skeleton with these regulations.
0: So just so that people understand the difference between the shooting cases where you administered funds, where people didn't have a lawsuit that they were foregoing. It was a gift, as you put it, in which case you went by a certain principle of justice, which is all lives are equal and everyone gets the same. In this other context, like the 9-11 attacks, people had potentially a cause of action, a litigation that they could bring against, for example, the airlines. And so part of the goal with respect to the 9-11 case and some others distinct from the, the shooting cases was to to increase efficiency and get people some analog of what they otherwise have the right to under the common law of tort. And that's why you had to do it that way. Is that a fair way of distinguishing them?
1: That is absolutely, I couldn't say it better myself. That's absolutely right. And fortunately, we I believe we were proven successful because 97% of all the claimants who came in, who lost a loved one on 9-11 on the airplanes, the World Trade Center, or the Pentagon, came into the fund. Only 94 people in total, voluntarily opted out, litigated against the airlines, and they all settled their cases five years later. The program worked just as Congress intended.
0: And to your mind, the principal benefit of opting in in the 9-11 case or these other cases is what?
1: Well, speed, certainty, certainty more than anything else. You opt into the 9-11 fund, and you will, within 60 days with certainty, know what you're going to receive Without rolling the dice in the courtroom, years of protracted discovery and depositions and and cross-examination, uncertain result with the jury, a third of your um, award going to your lawyer, and if you can avoid all of that and come into this very efficient and streamlined certain fund and know very, very quickly what you're going to get.
0: There's something else in – the statute with respect to the 9-11 compensation scenario, that was clear and left out, I think as you mentioned, psychological injury. So that means if you were on site at the World Trade Center, you survived, but you have some form of PTSD and have been traumatized and it's affected your ability to work in, in material and concrete ways, you couldn't do anything for those people.
1: That's right, they were ineligible. The law, the statute required physical injury. Now people came to me and said PTSD, Results in a physical injury. I can't get out of bed. My hand shakes, etc. No, we concluded that Congress was worried that people all over the United States watching CNN that day on 9/11 might claim a, make a claim. I, I was in Omaha and I turned on the TV and I couldn't believe what I saw. I can't get out of bed in Omaha. So Congress required a direct causal connection. Between a physical injury and the attacks in the immediate vicinity of the World Trade Center and the Pentagon.
0: But you had to meet with people, often one-on-one, and hear their requests for for claims. What was that like?
1: That was the worst part of the job. In fact, I tell people all the time, calculating damages is not rocket science. You have to have an adding machine, a calculator, and know Chapter 7 of the Law of Torts. The real debilitating part is when you agree, as you must, to meet privately with any individual family member or injured victim or disgruntled victim who wants to meet with the special master. And I met with about 950 separate hearings with victims of 9-11, and that is the debilitating Uh, heart-wrenching part of the job, which I think would make most people ineligible to even want to do what I did.
0: Well, how did did you make it through day after day, listening to people's stories and hearing people plead with you, often in circumstances in which you could not help them?
1: Uh, you, You don't get through it, really. You do the best you can. You cry in private, not in public. You're buoyed or supported by... Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives. This was an apolitical assignment. I mean, everybody was backing you up. John Ashcroft is the Republican Attorney General, one of my heroes to this day for his support. And um, you just—you're a professional. You have been asked by President Bush, or in the BP oil spill by President Obama, and you take on that assignment. You're a professional, like you are. And you um, gird yourself, but you think you're going to, you've heard it all. And then you hear stories from individuals that you, you just totally fall apart. You can't believe uh, some of what you hear privately from individual uh, victims.
0: When you began doing this work more and more, I think you've said and written that at the beginning, in engaging in this kind of professional activity, you were a bit too lawyerly and you came to understand the importance of empathy. How important is that?
1: That's the key, you see, empathy. The perception, if not the reality, that you feel for people. I mean, all of my uh, wonderful work, like yours in the Southern District, litigating and engaging very good lawyers, judges, and it was wonderful. But when you get into a room with an individual victim, I'll never forget, One of my first hearings, a woman came to see me privately, 24 years old. She was sobbing. She said, Mr. Feinberg, um, I understand from your staff and your calculations that you're going to give me $2 million because my husband, a firefighter, died at the World Trade Center. You're going to give me $2 million and my husband and I, we have two children, six and four. Now, this $2 million that you're going to give me, I want it in 30 days. I said to her, Mrs. Jones, this is public money, taxpayer money. It may take a little bit longer. We've got to get out of the Treasury. They've got to do their due diligence before they cut a taxpayer check. I said 30 days. I said to her, I said, Mrs. Jones, why do you need the money in 30 days? She said, Why? Mr. Feinberg, I'll tell you why. I have terminal cancer. I have 10 weeks to live. My husband was going to survive me and take care of our two children. Now they're going to be orphans. And I have got to get this money and get a trust set up with a guardian to take care of my two little ones. They're not going to have a mother or a father. Well, we ran down to the Treasury and walked through the check. We accelerated the money. We got her the check, and eight weeks later, she died. Now, that takes its toll much more than day-to-day calculation of damages. And stories like that, which I heard every day, just shook me to, the, to my bones.
0: Do you ever think of getting out of this line of work for that reason?
1: Well, you think about it, and then, but, but uh, you're a public servant like you your whole career. What are you going to tell after 9-11? Right, now the Boston Marathon bombing. So you get a call from Mayor Menino in Boston and Governor DeVal Patrick. Ken, you know, you grew up in Brockton, Mass. That's not too far from Boston. We need you up here, pro bono, to set up a program. Well, what are you going to say? I'm busy? I can't take it? No. So you do it. I've done them. And you, you get through it, but uh, you, you, you pay a price.
0: Has there ever been an assignment like that that you've turned down?
1: Oh, I, um, I, I turn down a lot of assignments uh, when when you really don't need anybody like me. You know, uh, I get a call from Fort Hood when those I think thirteen soldiers were killed, or uh, seeing Bernardino a couple of years ago where some people were killed. And they call up about setting up a fund. And I say, you you guys don't really need a fund. How much money do you have? And they say, well, we've raised about a million dollars. Take the million dollars, divide it by the number of dead and injured, and that's it. I mean, don't make this more complicated than it has to be.
0: But why does everyone keep calling you?
1: Because the last one worked. (laughs) (laughs) You know all about success. If the last <laughs> one was successful, so the next one. Well, we better get here. He did that one, so let him do this one.
0: That's you think fine. every once in a while like, there's like a second guy, you know. It's not, it's not always Ken Feinberg. Well,
1: be careful what you wish for because all – you know, one of these days, obviously, I'm going to screw up human nature. I mean, I'll make a mistake and I'll just say, look, I'm out of this. You know, call pre, He'll, he'll do
0: it. <laughs> How do you make sure you don't screw up?
1: You follow the template. You're very, very transparent. People may not want to hear the substantive message, but they certainly respect when you walk into the lion's den and you explain what you can do and can't do. I met 300 people in New York after 9-11, in various auditoriums, firefighter, widows, people of all sorts. And I said to them, right, to the 300, 200, 300 people, anybody suffering from purely mental injury... Don't even bother replying. 2,000 did anyway, and we rejected them. But don't bother. Well, there was a lot of screaming and epithets leveled at me. But I think people respect when you walk in and you sit down, I'm the guy. Now, what are the questions? I'll answer them to the best of my ability under the statute and the regulations. And that's the way it's going to be. And um, I think that helps a great deal.
0: How do you respond, though, to the criticism of this whole process which is in part an endeavor in denying people their day in court which a lot of people you know hail as a as an important right of an american to have your day in court and here we are trying to shepherd everyone towards not having their day in court so that the airlines or some other folks who may have been liable don't have to be tied up and perhaps bankrupted by litigation is that a valid criticism or is that miss the point
1: I think it misses the point. First of all, no one has to come into these programs. If you feel you'd rather have your day in court, and 94 different people thought that way in 9-11 and went to Judge Hellerstein in the Southern District and Judge Mukasey. So first, my first answer to that is then don't come into the program. There'll be enough people, no matter what, that you're going to deter through the tort system wrongdoing. The second thing is I, I tell people all the time The tort system is so ingrained in the fabric and history of the country, an isolated case like 9-11 isn't going to change the way we litigate in this country. You hear all this talk about tort reform, Feinberg's 9-11 fund is a model for the future. It's a model for nothing. It's not a precedent for anything. (laughs) I didn't see any 9-11 fund after Katrina. A thousand people died in that flood in Louisiana there was no 9-11 fund. The idea that you're going to take public money to compensate private citizens while everybody else fend for themselves, I don't think that the 9-11 fund is a precedent for the future. It's an isolated example that ought to be studied in the history books. The real problem that you have to confront, what do you tell a mother who comes to see me after 9-11 and says, Mr. Feinberg, explain something to me. My son died in Oklahoma City when the Albert Murrah building was blown up by a domestic terrorist. Where's my money? Or, Mr. Feinberg, I don't get it. My daughter died in the basement of the World Trade Center in the original 1993 attacks committed by the very same type of people. How come I'm not eligible? Now that, that is a a very big problem. It's a political, philosophical problem more than anything else. But uh, trying to explain to people why they're not eligible for an innocent death of a loved one while everybody else is getting taxpayer money in 9-11, that's a tough challenge.
0: I mean, it's a problem when when the government decides to engage in largesse of a, of a certain type after a singular event in history, people that you've described who have lost loved ones in similar situations, but not quite that, you know, singular, you know, nation-changing event of 9-11 have a real gripe that they can put forward.
1: They, they absolutely do. They absolutely do. That's why I, t- I try and explain to people all the time, I think the 9-11 fund worked. I think it was the right thing to do at the time from the perspective of the American people, not the victims. But don't ever do it again. Don't ever take taxpayer money and use it just for a certain number of injured victims. Everybody else fend for yourself. I don't think that's that's America.
0: This is not a great analogy or parallel, but but there are sometimes things that happen in the country and in the world where you have to do something special to heal some wounds and to make people whole, even if it's not across generations and across incidents over time, perfectly equal and perfectly just. Again, this is not a great analogy, but, you know, there's a reason for the Marshall Plan. There's a reason for the GI Bill. There are reasons why public money was used to help people in a particular context when that money was not used to help similarly situated people in other contexts because, you know, some people thought, perhaps correctly, that this event was so catastrophic and ripped at the fabric of the country so much or the world so much that we need to do something special this one time.
1: I don't know why you say that's not a good analogy. You've given a couple of examples which are fabulous analogies. Sometimes there are benefits that are um, directed at certain individuals, countries, individuals, states, et cetera, but are designed to to the benefit of the entire body politic. And I think those are some good examples. And 9-11 was an example.
0: So you've had other cases, uh, BP, the BP disaster, where circumstances were a little bit different. How, how is that different, more complicated, or easier than
1: 9-11? Easier in the sense that it's private money from an international oil cartel, so you're not using taxpayer money. Very, very problematic because of the volume of claims in the BP oil spill. I received in 16 months 1,250,000 claims for oil damage from 50 states and 37 foreign countries. I didn't know the oil had got to Alaska or to Boston or to New York. Well, that was very problematic. The sheer magnitude of the the catastrophe uh, led me to have to process 1,250,000 claims. But it was private money. It was a private settlement pushed by the Obama administration, which demanded an independent administrator, asked me to do it, and we got it done. Six and a half billion dollars spent, paid out in 16 months.
0: What considerations in your mind are different when it's public money versus private money?
1: Well, first of all, public money is unprecedented. I mean, one of the considerations you've got to realize is our, our political discussion five minutes ago, like the Marshall Plan. I mean, when you're using taxpayer money to the benefit of private citizens, right away you're in a political thicket, because why those citizens when there are plenty of other innocent victims? With BP oil spill money, there's no love lost if it's going to cost BP 20 billion or 30 billion or 40 billion because it's BP and it's an oil company and they've fouled the beaches of uh, of the Gulf, but. But you run into this dilemma, nevertheless, of um, determining eligibility when hundreds of thousands of people are asking for money. That is a challenge, no question.
0: So you're now working on another hot-button issue that is much in the news with respect to the Archdiocese of New York, the Archdiocese of New Jersey, the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, figuring out compensation for victims of sexual abuse. That's another that's another difficult one. You don't think any, any one. easy ones, Ken. How do you think about those issues and what considerations exist there that may be the same or different?
1: Well, first it's all church money. It's not publicly funded. This is all private money coming from the bank accounts of the Catholic Church. Secondly, all of the claims. Are basically time barred by the Statute of Limitations. These are these are abuses that took place decades ago. Uh, so, in a sense, in a sense, the money is a gift because unless the various states like New York recently reopened the Statute of Limitations to allow a reopener for people to sue, if they can sue or if they want to sue, the money is recognized as very, very helpful. It's sort of the only monetary avenue available but the money doesn't go very far in assuaging the harm inflicted on these abuse victims when they were minors abused by the church by priests and it is very very um debilitating it's very emotional it's tragic
0: are you meeting with individual victims in those cases too
1: in all of these programs I offer to meet with anybody who uh, wants to meet one-on-one with me. You don't have to. It's an option. Many, many people, more than half, don't want to meet with me. They're embarrassed. They've tried to move on. They've they've coped as best they can. Just send in the forms. Send me my money. I have no reason to come and see you. Others want to come and talk, and I'll, I'll meet with them, and that's the tough part.
0: Do you think you could have a second career now as a counselor? No. <laughs> you, you haven't gotten that good yet. I mean, you've had no, hundreds no. and hundreds of experiences talking to people who have gone through pain and suffering. What have you learned from that?
1: Well, you learn. You, you do learn some things. You learn from the perspective of the victim how different human nature is. Every victim is different. You know this. Some come to see me angry, frustrated, disappointed, um, tearful. The reaction of victims in any tragedy is as multifarious and as as diverse as human nature itself. The thing I've learned, and you probably learned it better than me many years ago in your your work, is to become a better listener, become more empathetic. Um, You don't know it all. You don't know a thimble, frankly, in some of these cases. And a recognition, I think, Uh, of one's humility in confronting people who have confronted the horror of tragedy, I think makes you, I'd like to think, makes you a better person.
0: I'm sure it does. But then going back to how you quantify the loss for purposes of compensation, in some ways this sounds macabre, but in some ways there's either death or not. And you gave the example of some other cases basing compensation on how many days someone was in the hospital. In the case of sexual abuse, what are the, the factors and metrics you use to decide who gets what?
1: How old was the minor when abused? How often was he abused? What is the nature of the abuse? It's one thing if for a year the priest um, rubbed your shoulders or rubbed your crotch. It's another thing if we have sodomy, rape, and over how many incidents? Once. 10 times, 200 times. Uh, Those are all factors.
0: But do you establish a chart for each of those things? Again, this sounds a little bit odd to speak this way, but do you assign values so that your decisions are uniform? Yes. Or do you take into account these considerations and then sort of do a ballpark what seems right?
1: You start sort of a hybrid. You're right. We start with a matrix. Basically, you know, we'll pay anywhere from, you know, $10,000 to maybe $500,000 depending on nature of the abuse, incident rate, and all of that. But then there are add-ons, minor drugs, alcohol, location of abuse. There are occasions where the priest would only abuse the child in the church itself, not in the rectory. So we take that into account. But we have a pretty consistent, I think... Line of uh, compensation opinions and eligibility opinions because I think consistency is important in demonstrating to people the program isn't biased in any way.
0: Does it feel perverse ever? And I, I feel this way often about the sentencing guidelines and the fact when you're talking about punishment, different context but parallel. When you're talking about punishment, in the interests that are important that you just described of uniformity and consistency, we have come up with a numerical system that gives points. To how many convictions you have and gives points in the other direction uh, if you've not had convictions and gives points for the dollar amount of loss and how involved you were and whether you were a leader. And it seems perverse to have a chart, a numerical chart, that tries to get at all these different considerations mathematically, and which you have to do as well, you know, given the description of the sort of matrix that you described. Is that just the way it has to be and you throw up your hands because there's no other way to do it? Or do you ever feel this is an odd exercise when we're talking about uh, young boys who've experienced an incredible amount of of mental and physical anguish?
1: Oh, I think it's an odd exercise. First of all, your your criticisms of sentencing guidelines, for example, you're reading from Judge Weinstein's book and his articles and his constant criticism of the guidelines on the grounds that it is all points and numbers and calculations and the failure of the uh, criminal justice system to recognize the individual variables of every convicted offender. Uh, I know of your work in the Southern District and the sentencing guidelines as a prosecutor and the difficulties in applying those guidelines in individual cases. Now, in the church, you, you can make the argument there is a certain degree of, of uh, uniformity and certainty and consistency that... that Violates the individual variables of a case. But I think with my work in the church, it's less of a problem because of the rather consistent nature of the harm over time. And you're, you're comparing apples and apples in a way. Uh, you're not looking at the different variables of, an, of the victim's home life and all of that. It's more a focus on the quality of the harm, the nature of the harm, and the the number of incidents. And so it's easier, I think, to develop a matrix, notwithstanding you're absolutely right that there are other variables that have to be factored in to make sure that it's not just assembly line justice, but that there is consideration given to the uniqueness of every case. And we try and do that within within the range.
0: So there was another whole different category of type of matter that you worked on, that I'm, I'm presuming was less of a, uh, an emotional effect on all parties, but maybe I'm wrong about that. And that is after the financial crisis, you were asked by the Treasury Secretary to figure out the proper compensation packages for the heads of various companies, including Chrysler, Bank of America, AIG, and others. And you have written, do not underestimate the emotions associated with arguments over pay. <laughs> what was that experience like?
1: Uh, a shocking experience. I would have thought that when I sit with a corporate executive and tell that corporate executive because of the the crisis, the financial crisis, I'm going to cut your pay 50%. I thought that that official would say something like, you have a hell of a nerve doing that because now I'll have to sell one of my automobiles in the garage. or I'll have to sell my house summer home on Long Island, or I'll have to tell my kids they've got to go to public school instead of Phillips or Exeter. And I was prepared for that. What I wasn't prepared for was the corporate official who would look at me and say, you cut my pay by 50% and you are demeaning my self-worth. My compensation is a mirror, a barometer of my self-worth, not community, not my family, not the church, my pay. And when you say you're cutting my compensation in half, you're telling me personally I'm only half the person I thought I was. Well, I never prepared myself for that. And it got very, very emotional.
0: How did you respond? How did you respond to people?
1: Uh, There's nothing I could I responded a rather hollow way, which is, well, that's what Congress said when they passed the law. And I'm on a bound to follow the law and blah blah bu, blah, bu. but I, I I realized that it made no sense for me to say, "What do you mean, self worth? What about your family and your wonderful work in the community, the church that you?" That you know, I'm not going to get in an argument with these people. That's the way they feel, but it was very very emotional and very very difficult. And um, I would have thought loss of life would have been much more emotional, but I was wrong about that.
0: What does that say about? their leadership skills, you think, and how they run their companies, if their self-worth is so bound up with the compensation number?
1: Well, I think that their leadership skills are called into question. I'm not sure that they run their companies wrongly. Maybe that it's considerations like that that make their company so successful. I don't know. I don't want any part of it. Nor do you, based on your experience and your resume. You don't want any part of it. Yeah.
0: Well, if self, if if my self-worth were determined by compensation, I might be doing something differently today.
1: No, I think that's <laughs> right. See? And that, 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 that is, frankly, a, a tribute to you. and It's the way it is. But it stunned me, I'll tell you that. And after all those years in public service, I say to myself, what? But so be it.
0: How do you deal with criticism? You get a lot. You, you're in a position, as we've discussed for, a, for many minutes now, where emotions are raw, people think they're not getting a fair shake, where people are angry, frustrated, grieving. You, you, I think you once called yourself a human piñata. How do you how do you deal with that?
1: You don't deal with it publicly. I mean, I never engage people who criticize me. Uh they lost loved ones. What do you expect? I mean, yeah, show some understanding of what they're going through. Mr. Fiberg, it's all your fault. Well, uh I do hope that this helps in some small way. And you're know, you're just trying to buy me off and well, I you know, you have a right not to take the money if you want. I hope you'll rethink it and afterward, among staff, we sometimes uh exchange notes about how unfair most of the criticism is but um it goes with the territory and when the public criticizes me i simply show them a key like one of my keys and say you don't like the way i'm doing the bp oil spill fund here here's the key you do it you want (laughs) to do it that shuts them up pretty quickly
0: what about the plaintiff's lawyers
1: most plaintiff lawyers love these programs. They represent people in, in what is essentially a workers' comp system, and they still get their third contingency fee. Now, some of the plaintiff lawyers um, I um, engage with who say that this is a threat to the rule of law and what you do, Feinberg, without any, any um, checks, there's no committees, there's no appeals. It's just your word, your decision. It's unreviewable. That's not the American way. And I say to those lawyers, you're right. It isn't the American way. (laughs) Fortunately, (laughs) now fortunately, you don't have anything to worry about. These programs that uh, Preet and I are talking about today are aberrations. They're unique, and they're not going to replace the tort system. They're not going to replace the the legal system that you were taught in law school. I don't. Most lawyers were taught that what I do is is not the right way, and I appreciate that. I, I. attended law school and I understand that you know you were taught a different way the adversary system judge and jury you choose your lawyer I'll choose mine off we go that's that's the American way and that'll stay the American way these programs are rather interesting to talk about but I don't think they're the wave of the future
0: Ken Feinberg thank you for making the time this was a great conversation
1: an honor and a privilege and 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 uh I salute you for all you have done uh, for the good of the country huh? Proud to have been allowed to be on the show today.
0: Thank you, sir. And, and don't you. try to hand your keys
1: to me. <laughs> you keep,
0: keep the keys. You're next. I finally <laughs> figured
1: out who's replacing me. It's taken me years to figure this out. There is now a public, I can now publicly say, just ask pre, He's ready to do it. Pro bono. Thanks, Ken.
0: So, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I'm recording this uh, from the UK in London while I'm on my book tour here. And this is the part of the program where I talk about something in the news that's important and that struck me. So, this is a bit of news that has not just struck me, but lots of people all over the world. And it's a bit of sad news and, and tragic news, but it's especially affected the people in the United Kingdom. Of course, I'm talking about the tragic death of a freelance journalist named Lyra McKee. Lyra McKee was reporting from Northern Ireland last week in the city of Derry on, among other things, anti-police rioting. And while she was reporting, she was standing next to police in that city, and gunfire broke out, and she was shot and killed. She was 29 years old. She was not a combatant. She was not a participant in the controversy. She was just a young reporter doing her job, and doing it with bravery and courage, like so many journalists do in Northern Ireland, uh, in England, in the United States, and all sorts of other treacherous parts of the world, where sometimes we, I think, don't appreciate enough how dangerous the job is. As I've been going from place to place over the last two days, and especially today, Wednesday, every time you turn on the television, which is mostly BBC channels, they're showing the funeral and it's a very moving one, taking place in Belfast that not only have her friends and her family who are mourning her loss, but also Prime Minister Theresa May and the Prime Minister of Ireland and the leaders of Northern Ireland as well. So it is an event undoubtedly felt most painfully to her family. It's something that's galvanized a lot more. And So there are a lot of things that are swirling around with respect to Lyra McKee's death. There's an ongoing criminal investigation because she was clearly murdered. There is a political reckoning of what this means uh, for peace or a lack of peace in parts of Northern Ireland. And there's of course the outpouring of grief. And as I'm learning also, uh, it may have implications for the biggest issue facing the UK of all, and that is Brexit. But for now, I just want to leave you with with two thoughts. One, as I said, uh, we should honor and appreciate journalists around the world who do their job Uh, with great courage, even in the face of violence and even in the face of their denigration by political leaders in countries all around the world. And people should maybe pause and think about what it means to do that, especially on a day like today. And then second, we should honor and respect the woman, Lyra McKee, who has been eulogized at great length in Belfast today. Uh, Some people showed up at the funeral in Harry Potter outfits, and superhero costumes because she apparently was a great lover of Harry Potter and of Marvel Comics. But as is often the case, nobody can speak about a loved one as well as their own family. And so let me just leave you with this thought expressed in a statement by Lyra McKee's family who remembered her as a, quote, smart, strong-minded woman who believed passionately in inclusivity, justice, and truth. And here's what else her family said about her we would ask that Lyra's life and her personal philosophy are used as an example to us all as we face this tragedy together. Lyra's answers would have been simple. The only way to overcome hatred and intolerance is with love, understanding, and kindness.
1: In the words of Lyra herself, we must change our own world one piece at a time. Now so let's get to work.
0: Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Ken Feinberg. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to tuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe. It's produced by Kat Aaron and the team at Pineapple Street Media, Henry Malovsky, Joel Lovell, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. The executive producer at Cafe is Tamara Sepper. And the Cafe team is Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, Vinay Basti, and Jeff Eisenman. Stay tuned is produced in association with Stitcher. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. It's important to feel safe at home. Simply Safe knows this. That's why they developed a security system that keeps working if the power goes out, if the Wi-Fi goes down, or even if a burglar smashes your keypad. They also have some of the fastest response times in the industry, ready to send help 24-7 if there's an emergency. Go to SimplySafe.com preet to check it out. That's simplysafe.com preet.